This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Sir Craig Oliver. Craig Oliver was the, the head of communications for David Cameron from 2011 till the summer of last year. And before that, he had a distinguished career, uh, editing the BBC's News at 6 and News at 10, controller of the BBC World Service, and executive editor of ITV's flagship news programmes. Uh, you recently published an account of your time as David Cameron's head of communications, Craig, called Unleashing Demons, the inside story of Brexit. And I'd like to start, actually, with a quote from, from the book, where you're quoting the, Mr Cameron himself, who's was reflecting on a, a discussion made uh, taking place between cabinet colleagues, those for and those against, as it were. And he says the following, you quote him as saying the following, quote, it's interesting, it boils down to a debate about sovereignty versus influence. Do we have more genuine control over things that matter through greater sovereignty at home or through having influence over an organisation that will continue to exist and affect us even if we leave? End of quote. That strikes me as a very interesting quote because many people said one of the major flaws of the campaign and why I'm not necessarily doomed to failure was that David Cameron had been saying for quite a while before the negotiation, renegotiation, negative things about the EU, like many prime ministers around Europe. Uh, even during the negotiation, he was saying that I leave, I, ex I exclude, I you know, rule nothing out. So that the threat may be walking away, as we were, or at least not recommending to be on the pro side. And then, of course, when the deal was struck with the 27, he then came out and said unequivocally, I'm pro-EU. But that affected his credibility. Is that a fair criticism? Did he lack credibility? Uh, I think a lot of people feel that that was a weakness. I think the issue is, is that when you get into a campaign, it's binary. It's yes or no, in or out. And the reality is, at that moment, if you've taken the decision to recommend, we have a very sort of binary adversarial system. And if you're equivocal at those moments, then it's you're very easily taken apart. Um, so there's a lot to unpack in your answer. There was also like his scepticism <laughs> about the EU. Now, the reality of British politics in the last 40 years is there's been a huge amount of scepticism about the EU. And in fact, um, no one had really been doing the European Union's um, PR very well over those 40 years. So we had a very limited window in which to try and persuade people to vote for it, but it was very difficult negative stories about it. Okay. Well, one of your own quotes in the book is referring to the Conservative Party. Uh, it's a bloody civil war, maybe bloody in, in the literal sense. I mean, it's, it seems a bit uh, of a cliche to say so, but your book certainly confirms that the whole Europe debate in Britain was very much a debate amongst different wings of the Conservative Party as opposed to other political I, players. I don't, I don't think that's true. I think that the reality is, is that the Conservative Party were the dominant force in British politics at that time. And therefore, the splits in it, because it was the government, were right to the fore. And it is certainly true to say that previous leaders of the Conservative Party, from Margaret Thatcher to John Major, Ian Duncan Smith, William Hay, David Cameron, certainly all of whom had had huge issues over Europe, but the Labour Party was having issues over Europe too, suggesting that there should be a referendum as well. And the reality is um, that a lot of people act as if it was just purely a Conservative issue. It wasn't, and perhaps we can talk a little bit more about it. Okay. It, what comes also uh, across in your book is the extent to which David Cameron was, was sort of played things with his colleagues, very much like a gentleman. He was very courteous, he was very accommodating. He didn't force Cabinet Ministers to resign on, if they were uh, in the Leave camp, but not until you know, the, uh, the campaign was formally uh, launched, as it were. So 
But that's, that's all too is good. But it struck me that it wasn't as if that, the other side was kind of reciprocated that. So is there a case to be made that he was not just courteous and, and accommodating, but also slightly naive in his treatment to some of his cabinet colleagues? I think it's, it is always amazing, isn't it, that the hindsight is twenty twenty. Now, right until 10 p.m. on June the 23rd last year, you couldn't find anyone who thought the Leave campaign was going to win. In fact, at 10 o'clock on the 23rd of June, Nigel Farage conceded. We had hedge funds and the currency markets saying, actually, we think Britain is going to stay in. Pollsters were saying it was going to be an, at least an eight-point Leave. No one thought that Leave had won. Now, the reason I spend a lot of time saying that is I think that that factored into a lot of our psychology. We pulled a lot of our punches because we thought we could actually just get across the line, you know, finish still on our feet. In reality, much more difficult issues were at play and weren't obvious because of flaws in polling, in flaws in terms of people being prepared to say what they actually think. So the reality was that we spent a lot of our time believing in the old iron law of politics, which is, it's the economy, stupid. In reality, 30 days before the end of the campaign, immigration numbers came out, and it was clear at that point on that immigration was the number one issue. Um, and we didn't have much of an answer, because we were recommending that people stay part of an institution which says that you will have unlimited freedom of movement regardless of circumstances, come what may. And that argument just did not wash with the British people. You mentioned the, uh, the pollsters and the flaws and the polling. What kind of flaws were they? Well, what's interesting is that we sat with um, very, very eminent pollsters and they told us that the polls were overestimating the number of people who were prepared to vote leave. And when they were probed on that, they said that there's a group of about 3 million people who say they will vote, but actually don't. They haven't voted in 2015, they haven't voted in 2010 or 2005 either. And they were factored out of the polls. Now, actually, when you think about it, and it's sort of forehead-slappingly obvious as a thing, was a lot of these people lived in areas of the country where it didn't matter how they vote. They were going to get a Labour or a Conservative MP come what may. In a referendum, your vote counts equally. So the pollsters were slightly naive in terms of saying these people won't vote and that they won't actually have a say. And I think that probably, retrospectively, we should have paid a lot more attention to those people. There were three million of them. And something else which comes out in the book, I haven't finished it quite, but I've read quite a lot, is the fact that your insistence, your collective insistence, maybe based on some of the advice you're getting from outside advisors, was there's no real mileage to be, to be gained in, in putting out messages which are pro-EU per se. What you have to do is measure on the economic impact, the negative economic impact, of leaving uh, the European Union on the UK economy. So what happened was that we do, did a lot of research into British electorate. And what this is a very standard thing in politics and in marketing is that you go out there and analyse who's out there and what they're saying. And then you segment the audience. Now, you end up segmenting them into people who are going to vote leave, come what may, and remain, come what may. And in the middle are groups that are persuadable, and you have to focus on those groups that are persuadable. Now, those groups, we call them heads versus hearts um, and reluctant remainers, they were prepared to hear an economic argument that, that, that you should stay. 
what they would not swallow and they would not believe was somehow that this is a magical institution that's an amazing thing, um, it's a wonderful operation and it'll change their lives for the better because we're a member of it. Mm. Those arguments were tried and rejected by that group. And in politics and in campaigning, you have to focus on what are people actually going to listen to. Now, I spend a lot of time speaking to a lot of people in the EU, in Brussels and Remainers, who will say, you should have been linking arms and singing Ode to Joy. It wouldn't have washed. Right. You talk about the, you know, hindsight being a great thing. I mean, another, another function of human nature is you know, short-term memory um, and how we, we tend to forget. You mentioned the Leave campaign, how for a, quite a long time, the two main Leave camps, both Leave and the Leave.UK, what they're called, were, thank you, Leave EU, were, were in disarray, couldn't agree. Right? And they were arguing about who should have, you know, they were hope, jostling for position who would be the official Leave campaign. Uh, but they seem to, what would be the, the Leave Dot, yes, Leave EU campaign run by Farage and Aaron Banks seemed to major early on on immigration, right, in a way that Vote EU did not want to do. Yeah, what's interesting, I think, is that a lot of the politicians that were associated with the official Leave campaign, which wasn't Nigel Farage, but the official Leave campaign, wanted to talk about issues like sovereignty and whether or not Britain could become a swashbuckling, free-trading nation like Singapore. Now, they struggled to gain traction with those arguments. They believed in them passionately, but they struggled to get traction. The reality is the thing that got them real traction was much more the UK Independence Party-style arguments, which are about essentially pulling up the drawbridge, not engaging with this international institution, and controlling our borders better. Right. Another uh, theme which comes out, not just in your book, but, but other accounts, I, I won't name them, which have been published since the referendum, uh, is this, this resistance by David Cameron and maybe his entourage, uh, what, what, you, what was called, came to be known as blue on blue, in other words, uh, the government uh, not sanctioning any sort of attacks or criticism of, of fellow colleagues in the, around the cabinet table in particular, much to the alleged uh, frustration of the Stronger In campaign. Uh, again, with a better bit of hindsight, was that a, a wise move? I think it was, and I, don't, I just don't accept the argument that basically engaging in a campaign of character assassination of Michael Gove or Boris Johnson would have worked. In fact, we did quite a lot of focus group work on it and showed that people didn't like it and it actually benefited Boris Johnson whenever you did it. Now, the reality also, and this is the more serious point, is you need to keep making your message about why you should remain in the EU. If it turns into a fight over who is the best place to be the next leader of the Conservative Party, you've lost. You've lost another day's coverage, and journalists are desperate to cover that kind of story. It's a much more interesting and exciting story. So the more you engage in that, the more you're dragged away from your core and central message, and it doesn't help. Right. Another main theme, rather obviously, in your book is the role, obviously, the power, the influence of the media, both print and broadcast. Let's talk first briefly about the print side. Um, you clearly spent, according to your, your, your account, a huge amount of time, you personally and your team and, and, and your political masters, trying to get your views across to rather uh, maybe um, resistant print media, bar press barons. Um, did, did you always feel this was a kind of a hiding to nothing, but you had to do it anyway? Or did you hope that to, 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 to move the needle? There was some that were just from the off, we're out. So the Daily Express, um, the Daily Mail, were pretty much from the position that, that we're out from the off. Other organisations like the Telegraph were saying we're willing to be persuaded. In reality, when they did surveys of their readers, they found that between 70 and 80% of them, older demographic, 
and they didn't want to leave. So in the end, it, they went to well, they just learned. And the reality was, well, we discovered one of the chapters of my book is called What It Feels Like to Be Ed Miliband. <laughs> um, but when you have the level of campaigning that those newspapers, the Mail, the Sun, the Express and the Telegraph, in concert can deliver, that is a hell of a thing to try and overcome. Right. But going back to your previous career as a broadcast journalist, you obviously had um, a lot of contact with um, the BBC in particular, and this debate which has come out more, of course, since the, re the, the result of the referendum, but obviously during the campaign as well, is this, this, this discussion about impartiality versus balance. I mean, how frustrating was it for you and, and David Cameron, the whole Remain camp, that the BBC had a certain view about impartiality versus balance? I, I used to work for the BBC, and I totally understand how they got themselves into the situation that they did. But they spent far too much time focusing on balance and not enough on due impartiality. What would happen was that you'd get equal coverage of stories, or because somebody said something, it would be reported. Now, what's actually quite interesting in the United States at the moment is a lot of the headlines increasingly are no evidence for Donald Trump's claim that. Right. Instead of just saying Donald Trump claims. Right. Now, a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about this and how do you report that. I think that I'm quite critical of the BBC because they have, um, they broadcast to tens of millions of people on radio and television and online. Um, they have a huge impact. And when you have a newspaper industry that legitimately, but difficultly for us, are campaigning so hard against us, it's then incumbent on them to actually try and show, well, look, this isn't, it isn't the case that Turkey is going to join the EU. Mm. We don't spend £350 million a week on the EU, which can be spent on the NHS. We aren't going to be forced to join an EU army, and we also aren't in a situation where the bulk of our laws are decided in Brussels and Strasbourg. In fact, sovereignty is very, very highly weighted towards Westminster. But all of these things were the central planks of the Leave campaign and were reported fairly widely um, all the time. Okay. I, maybe I've spoken, asked too many questions about the Conservative Party. So the interest, interest of balance of not impartiality, uh, a question about the Labour Party. Uh, obviously, they were part of the Stronger In campaign. There was a Labour In uh, separate group uh, headed by Alan Johnson. There was, of course, the position of Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. What was the, the, the influence of the Labour Party in the campaign? Uh, you say that they were part of Stronger In. There, was a, there were some people who were members of the Labour Party who had an influence in Stronger In. Right. So people like Peter Mandelson and Will Straw. The reality is that the leadership of the Labour Party refused to have anything to do with us. And okay. they were extremely unhelpful and reluctant. Now, if you spend some time thinking about that, it makes sense. If you are the leader of the opposition party um, and you think that you will end up remaining in the EU and everybody's telling you referendum's obvious and we're going to stay in the EU why should you help somebody who is your mortal enemy mm. um, so the reality was we struggled to get any traction with them, we would have days where the grid was left open for them and they, they pulled back didn't do the story when they did we had people like John McDonnell the shadow chancellor criticising the campaign rather than actually making a clear coherent argument um, it was very, very difficult. 
I don't overstate this, uh, but people with longer memories, there are certain parallels, maybe, uh, bear with me, with the, the single currency campaign 15 years ago, whatever, um, written in Europe, when, of course, when Tony Blair was in Downing Street, not David Cameron, where the Conservative Party, if memory serves me well, did also refused to share platforms with the governing Labour Party, and, and the, the campaign felt, the official campaign felt sort of hamstrung by by the dictates of Downing Street. Are there, do you see anything there in the, in the campaign last year that the, that the official campaign was sort of constrained by Downing Street? The, I think the, the, the reality was that the Conservative Party during the single currency were very, very anti the idea of joining the euro. And I think you would struggle to find anyone in Britain now from any political party who would argue that it would have been wise for Britain to join the euro. I think that the broader point that you're making is... Um, what happens when political parties share platforms with each other and the SNP um, uh, didn't have to share a part platform with another party during the Scottish, Dash Scottish referendum the Labour Party did and they would say that that is responsible for them having real problems in Scotland now I'm not sure that's true but it is certainly an issue among political parties about when do you share a platform with anyone Right, so let's finish off then Craig by using this wonderful hindsight that we all have now after the event, and without obviously being exhausted because we haven't got time, could you maybe give at least one example where, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, things could have been done differently? I think that there are two issues that I think that, that we would look at. One is we thought the economy and the risk of the economy would trump everything, and we didn't have enough of an answer on immigration. And to be honest, I'm not sure the EU has enough of an answer on migration. Um, it feels as if it's got a tin ear to the concerns of people and it's one of the reasons why there's quite uh, growth in populism in a number of countries and it's certainly one of, if not the primary reason for why Britain left the EU. Um, but we, So we should have had a better answer on immigration and a bit better way of explaining how there are limits and we can control borders when it's necessary. Um, now, if you say that in the EU, I'm just looking across at one of the main buildings of the EU now that that's considered heresy. If you can continue with that and say that we're not willing to listen, um, it's going to continue to be very difficult, I suspect. Um, the other thing I think is that we did not spend enough time thinking about this group of three million that I talked about earlier, who pollsters told us would not vote and did. And those were the kind of people who didn't vote in traditional general elections but felt that globalisation had left them behind, that they hadn't had a pay rise for 10 years, um, that they weren't visited and listened to by politicians, that they were expendable. And um, that was definitely a mistake. We should have been speaking to them, but it's only clear with hindsight quite how important and valuable they were. Okay, we have to leave it there. Craig Oliver, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome.